The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 10.45 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Good evening. Glad y'all are here. Good to see you. I want you to open your Bibles to Psalm 127. We are beginning a, a parenting seminar the next three Sunday nights, and then the, the last Sunday night of the month will be the, uh, the fall festival. And we're calling this parenting seminar, Parenting in the Fear of the Lord. And I'll tell you all why we, we called it that in a second, but first let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come now to the throne of grace, and uh, we're, we're thankful for yet another Lord's Day in a, in a free country where we can worship you freely without fear of harassment or, or, or war at this moment, and we, we thank you, Lord, for these protections and these freedoms that uh, we honestly don't deserve, and uh, we thank you, Lord, for how you've uh, provided for our nation now for, for over 200 years and how you uh, sustain us. Lord, we know that all things are from your hand, that uh, in you uh, all things come and from you and to you. Uh, that it's all for your glory. We thank you, Lord, for the cross of Christ and the grace that was purchased there at the cross, that we can be regenerated by grace through faith, that we can come to know you as our Lord and as our Father, that we can call you Father and that we are your children. And it is in that light, Lord, that we come tonight to talk about parenting. We pray, Lord, that we as faithful parents and and grandparents would... uh, bring up the next generation in the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So, Lord, we pray for, for wisdom and for guidance in all these things. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, I called this, this course Parenting in the Fear of the Lord. And that might sound like a very interesting title to give a, a class on parenting. You know, what do you mean by uh, the fear of the Lord? And the reason why I gave it that title is because I wanted to put parenting in perspective. That parenting, you have to understand parenting in relationship to God, just like everything, just like we talked about this morning. There's not one square inch over which Christ, who is Lord, doesn't declare mine. So we have to understand parenting in terms of God. And you see this in Psalm Uh, 127, verse 3, look at verse 3. The psalmist says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. That means that they're gifts from the Lord. Children are gifts, they're blessings. The fruit of the womb, it's a reward, a reward. He says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed. Who's he blessed by? By God. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So we have to remember that children, if God gives you children, they're ultimately his children. You know, you remember Psalm 139. Who knits the child together in the mother's womb? God does. God is the author of life. He is. God is the creator of life, every single human life. God is is the author. And so as parents, that puts things in perspective. You don't own that child. You don't own the child. It's God's child. But you have a responsibility and a stewardship then to raise that child in the fear of the Lord. And this begins with understanding then children as a blessing, I was reading this book called The American Paradox. It was written by a psychologist who was doing really social studies, just looking at the American context and just noticing how America has rapidly changed over the past 30 years. And he says, quote, is American culture 
in its quest for individual fulfillment, progressively devaluing children, judging from collegians uh, giving lower ratings to having children and higher ratings to demanding personal fulfillment from marriage, it seems so. Judging from newly married couples rating personal freedom and leisure time as more important than having children, it seems so, end quote. So to sustain a country, uh, you have to have a 1.7 birth rate. We're already below that in this country. Uh, the only way that, that we can stay above that at this point is one, for there to be a revival and people start having kids, or two, immigration. But we're already below the 1.7 birth rate, and the reason is, is because people have just stopped having kids. People just stopped having kids. Uh, we were driving right down Six Forks the other day, and we saw, we saw a family uh, pushing, pushing a stroller, and we looked, and there was a dog in the stroller. There was a dog with a bib on it dressed like a little kid. People, people now are opting for animals because they're less expensive. Uh, this, this, this is the day and age that we live in. But the psalmist says that children are a gift from the Lord, and therefore, we as parents have a stewardship, a responsibility to raise that child in the fear of the Lord. I was once talking to uh, a distant relative, and I was talking to them about parenting and their kids, and they said, well, we always wanted to give our uh, kids the opportunity to have an open mind to decide for themselves what they wanted to believe. That was their parenting strategy. That's not what the Bible says. Uh, look at Look at uh, the book of Malachi. I want you to turn all the way to the, the last book in the Old Testament to Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. And this is uh, Malachi. Basically, the children, remember, had, had children of Israel had gone into exile. They'd come back into the land from Babylon, and they immediately, it's like you'd think that you'd learn your lesson from the idolatry and all that stuff. They immediately come back into the land, and what do they do? They mess it up. They start intermarrying with the, the Canaanites again. And, and what um, Malachi says, he's talking about making uh, a godly marriage, marrying another believer. He says, did he, uh, did God not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Why, why were you to marry another believer, and another Israelite? Godly offspring. Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. So God is seeking from your marriage, from your family, godly offspring. That's, that's our responsibility. So that's the first reason why we're calling this course Parenting in the Fear of the Lord. The second reason, I want you to turn to the Psalms, to, to Psalm 111. Psalm 111, verse 10. The second reason is that fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. Fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. I want you to look at verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Now, when we talk about fearing the Lord, theologians sometimes distinguish between what they call a filial fear and a servile fear. A filial fear is the fear that a son or daughter has for their parent. It's a, it's a healthy fear. You know you, you know, you love your dad, you love your mom, but you're also, you're also watchful that you don't disobey so you don't get disciplined. That's a healthy fear. A servile fear is, is more of an unhealthy fear. It's the, it's the, the slave in, in, in fear of his master. Think the, the Israelites in, in Egypt. That is a, uh, it, it's, it's a fear where you, where you think that the other person doesn't have your, your best interest at heart. So what uh, the psalmist says, and this is so critical that, that you understand this, is that wisdom begins when you start fearing God. Wisdom begins when you start fearing God. That's it. So, therefore, what you want for the child that God has entrusted to you is for them to begin to fear the Lord. 
because that's when wisdom starts. Wisdom is going to allow that child to live in this world and function properly without your care. You want to send them off. You want them to be able to flourish and, and to thrive and, and to function after you're gone. And wisdom is what is necessary, and that begins with the fear of the Lord. But there's a problem. There's a massive problem. Because our children are not born fearing the Lord. Your child is not born fearing the Lord. And this is what modern secularism has gotten wrong. We use the word education, education. That's from the, uh, a Latin word, ducto, which means to, to lead. And you just put a little E on the front, and it means to lead out. The idea being this, that there's something good there in the child and that you just got to lead it out of them. But the good is already there. That's what our modern education system is about. It's, it's designed under the idea that a child is naturally good, that a child has the natural wits to, to go about life, and you just have to lead them, lead it out of them in the right direction. But what the Bible says is actually the opposite. The Bible teaches what we call total depravity, that in Adam, after Adam, every single one of us is not born a saint, but a what? Sinner. Every single one of us is born a sinner. That's Romans chapter 5, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. That's total depravity. Sin has affected every single child of Adam. Are you a child of Adam? Yes. Yes, you are. There's one human race. I hear people talk about racial reconciliation and, you know, no, there, there's one race. You know, we're not, we're not being reconciled with a group of monkeys. There's one of us. And we're all sinners. We're all born sinners. Uh, Romans 3.11, no one understands. No one seeks for God. Does that sound like a few? No, none, nobody. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's total depravity. It doesn't mean that every person by God's common grace is as bad as they possibly could. Uh, by God's grace, no. God has established governments. God has established families. God has established the conscience to restrain evil. But what it does mean is that man is born inherently sinful. Inherently sinful. So, grandparents, I know that your grandchild is really cute. And they, you, you think that they've hung the moon. But the truth is, the truth is, is that left to themselves, left to themselves, it's Lord of the Flies. It's Lord of the Flies. It's apocalypse now. Man, man does this, left to himself. The trajectory of man is this, it's descent. It's always descent. What, what happens, do, do, if you don't do anything with an organization and an institution, a business, do things just get better? What happens? They get worse. They always get worse. That's total depravity. And, and it's the same true with, with children. You leave children to themselves, to, to govern themselves, you, you've got chaos. You have dissent. So the issue is this, is that you have to put the fear of the Lord into that child. And I'm not just talking about spanking. You ever hear that? I'm going to put the fear of the Lord into you, you know? Um, but you, we're talking about everything here, is that it, it, it's, it's that that child has to be altered from the inside out, because they naturally don't fear the Lord. Uh, they, they naturally desire to go their own way. They naturally stand at enmity with God. They naturally hate God. They want to be autonomous. They want to to live in the world the way that they please. 
I mean, does any parent honestly contest that? That is, that is the nature of mankind. So what is needed is a transformation for them to begin to fear the Lord. Okay, third reason why we're calling this course Parenting in the Fear of the Lord. I want you to turn now to the left to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Beginning in verse 7. David's talking about scriptural revelation. Talking about how, how God has revealed himself. And he says in, in verse 7, he's going to give six names for the word of God. Six names, six titles for God's word. Look at this in verse 7. First one, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Two, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Third, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Four, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And then look at number five. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. So David says that the word of God, another name for the word of God is what? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. That the word of God is the fear of the Lord. That's how closely connected this is. The fear of the Lord is, is cohesively tied to Scripture. And so I think this gives some clarification on what your responsibility is as a parent. You have a responsibility to bring your child as best you can face-to-face with this book in all of life. That they are to know this book, that they are to understand this book, that they are to to revere this book, that they need to know the Bible backwards and forwards. You should teach them who wrote the Gospels. You know, why why are there four Gospels? What's, What's the theme of each one? Who wrote the Acts of the Apostles? Why did Paul write the epistle to the Romans? What about Galatians and James? James says, faith without works is dead. Paul says, Galatians 2, by works of the law, no one will be justified. How do you square those together? You've got to teach these to your children so that they know the Word of God. I'm a firm believer that churches, nations, and families that unleash this are forever altered for good. This past week was the anniversary of William Tyndale's death. Does anybody know who William Tyndale is? William Tyndale was a brilliant scholar, educated in Oxford, and he was influenced by Luther and and the Reformation and the understanding that the gospel is by grace alone through faith. And, And William Tyndale had the audacity to take the Greek and Hebrew text and to begin to translate them into the English language. And King Henry VIII, this was before, uh, this was before his, his uh, affair and all this stuff, uh, didn't like that. He didn't want the Bible to be translated. So Tyndale fled to Europe, and he began translating. He began writing, and Henry VIII put out a, basically a, a, a command for him to be executed. And on October 6th, he was, uh, he was executed by strangulation and then being burned. And his final words were, he prayed, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. He wanted the king to put this book into print because he knew its power. That if you unleash this, lives are changed. And that's the truth. And this is what God says. I want you to turn over to, to Deuteronomy. You know this, this, these verses, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 
verse 6. Notice, notice how the Lord prioritizes the Word of God in the life of your child or the lives of your children. Look at this. This is a comprehensive statement. God says this, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So he's talking to the parents right now. He's saying, look, God's word is to be on your heart, parents. Uh, Your heart is to be overflowing with the word of God. And then he says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. That means that you have a responsibility then to teach your children God's truth, God's word. How do you do this? You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's he saying? He's saying that the word of God is to comprehensively master the life of your family. When you get up in the morning, you're you're having conversations about the Word of God. When you're in the car, you're having conversations. When you're at the dinner table, when when you're praying with your kids to put them in bed, you're constantly bringing them them back to the Word of God. Uh, My parents are here and and came in town, and uh, we have an action Bible that I use with with our uh, three-year-old. And, and Patrick came into the room and, and held the action Bible, and he says, this is my dad's Bible. And, uh, you know, as, as if this is, it, this is my Bible that I'm carrying around. But he's getting that idea because that's what we sit down and read so much, right? That he's, that he's uh, that's the impression that he has. And, and that's what you want to do is you, you want you, uh, verse, verse 6, to have the word of God in your heart. And that's going to bubble over and fill up your children's lives. Uh, you always evangelize and minister out of what uh, is flowing through you. You don't want your ministry to be a cistern. You want it to be a flowing stream. So that means that you always have to be intaking Scripture personally. And then as God, the Holy Spirit, brings Scripture and truth into your life, and, and God uh, bears fruit in your life through the word, then that's going to bubble up and flow into the lives of your children. And you're going to speak to them diligently about it. So that's why I, I called the course Parenting in the Fear of the Lord. Now, what I want to do over the next three weeks is this week I want to give you some general guidelines, some general guidelines and I'll explain more about that in a second. Next week, I want to specifically talk about discipline. Discipline, because that's a big topic, that's an important topic, and an often a neglected uh, topic. And then the, uh, the third week, I want to talk about developing a biblical worldview. Because as parents, you are responsible for the education of your child. The state, believe it or not, is not responsible for your child's education. Americans have been tricked into thinking that, that the state is responsible. The state's not responsible. The parents, God holds the parents responsible for the education of their children. So we're going to talk about basically Christian education. How do you educate your child in the fear of the Lord in the third week? So that's the, that's the general outline of, of how we're going to approach this. But I want to give some general guidelines to you tonight just regarding this theme of parenting and the fear of the Lord. And uh, I want to give you these guidelines um, not, not in the sense that this list is a foolproof guarantee that your kid will turn out the way that you want them to. Because that list doesn't exist. Um, when you're dealing with a child, there's always the possibility that that child will never come to know the truth, and that child, uh, as best as, as, as you might uh, parent that child, that that child is going to rebel, and that child is going to, to, to go wayward, and you can pray, 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 and for whatever reason, um, that child is, is, is going to be alienated with God and with you. 
And I've talked to so many parents over the past few years where they're in that boat, where, where their child has, has departed from the faith, renounced Christianity, and, and they're living, normally they're living in some type of sexual sin. Uh, perhaps it's, it's drugs or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, you look at some of these parents, and they did, they did it textbook. And, um, you know, the, you, so let, let me give you these lists as a guidelines. Now, that being said, godly parents, you know, if you look at godly parents that raise godly kids, they do things a certain way. There are certain things that all godly parents do, just like there are certain things that all uh, Hall of Fame baseball players do. All Hall of Fame baseball players can catch. All Hall of Fame baseball players can throw. They can all hit. They can all run the bases, so on and so forth. There are certain things that basically all godly parents do. And what you want to do is you want to, is, is you want to toil at these things. Because parenting is difficult. It's really challenging. And you want to just, to, to, as before God, do the best that you can doing these things. And Lord willing, God will take it from there and, and work in your child's heart to impart wisdom. So let me give you these. First, is you want to pray your child into the kingdom. Pray your child into the kingdom. I want to start here because um, parenting is an act of dependence on God. We've already said that a child is depraved. A child doesn't have wisdom. A child doesn't fear the Lord. And what is necessary for every child is that they be born again. Well, guess what? The new birth is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you do. Uh, I mean, that's John 3, right? That's where, uh, you know, Nicodemus is asking Jesus about the new birth. And, and Jesus says, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Can you control the wind? No, you cannot. Nor can you control the new birth. You can't control when a child is going to be born again. You can do everything right. You can, you can lead them to the gospel. You can, you can teach them the word of God. But that doesn't guarantee that that child will be born again. I was just talking to my parents. We grew up, there was a, a family in our church uh, in Dallas. They had seven, eight kids. And they were um, raising those kids. They were, they were homeschooling those kids. And their oldest daughter, when she turned 20 years old, ran off with a non-Christian man who was older than her daddy. You know, what do you, you know, where did that come from? You can't make a child be born again. But what you can do is you can pray, pray, pray. Uh, James 5.16 says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The old King James used to say that, uh, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And, and I talk to parents all the time, and their children are in, the, in these situations. They say, what do we do? And all you can do is resort to God. That's all you can do in some of these situations is pray. Um, and, but you don't want to begin praying when that child is going wayward and when they're off course. You want to begin praying for those children and grandchildren when they're babies, you want, to, you want to come before the Lord and, and every day pray for their salvation, and then once they're saved, their sanctification, their protection, their wisdom. Uh, this is a constant thing in the Christian life. It's constant prayers on behalf of your children that they would make the right decisions, that they would, they would desire to honor and fear the Lord, and so on and so forth. I was reading an account of a, a missionary his name is John Patton, and, and John Patton was a missionary to the New Hybrids Islands um, in the South Pacific. The islands had cannibals on them, and everybody told him if he went there, he would die. So you're talking about this is a, this is a very brave individual uh, that went as a missionary uh, there. And you ask, well, what type, of, what type of parents raised such an individual? I want to read you a, a journal account 
when he was leaving to go to divinity school. Uh, This is what he says. He said, I was leaving home for Glasgow to attend divinity school in preparation for missionary service. The distance from my village uh, to the train station was 40 miles. He says, my father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then whenever memory stills me away to the scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was often his custom, carrying hat in hand, his lips kept moving in silent prayers for me. And his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and went about to turn a corner in the road where he could where he would lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I had left him, gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I rounded the corner and out of sight for an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me further, so I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me. And after he gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face toward home, and began to return. His head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then, hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft, by the help of God, to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. So that's the approach. It's, it's prayer. Constantly praying. Lifting up our children. Pray, pray, pray. Pray in their presence for them. I remember one time praying, praying for Charles. And, and I was just, you know, Charles is our seven-year-old. And I was praying. I said, Lord, I just pray that you would, you would enable Charles to profess faith in Christ, that he would be a bold believer for Christ, a, a man of God. And we finished praying, and he said, Dad, why did you pray that prayer? Because I am a Christian. You know, they're listening, and they, they, uh, you're teaching them how to pray. And, and most importantly, God answers prayer. And you never know, maybe the reason why your granddaughter or grandson or, or son or daughter is going to be saved is as a result of your prayers. You don't know what God's ordained. So that's the first thing, is pray, pray, pray. The second is that you need to live a godly life. You need yourself to live a godly life. Sometimes parents are so focused on the child and how the children are doing and all those things that they forget that and and you could put this up chalk this up as as you know next to prayer this this might be the most important thing is that your life is a road that your children inevitably will follow that's why generational sin is so devastating what happens you know this single mom gets gets pregnant has, has the kid, what happens with that kid? Single mom gets pregnant, it's just generational sin. Why? The children are following the road that their parents walked, and it's the same with a righteous example. Righteous example, work hard, uh, family man, what's that child most likely to do? They're most likely to follow the example of their parents. For better, for worse, most children follow in the footsteps of their parents. I want to show you this from Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Paul says, Finally, brothers, 
This is just a great thing to keep in mind. This is one of those great verses to put on your wall. This is a great verse to put next to your TV. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Talking about a life committed to honor, what, what, what God calls good. Now notice the next verse. Notice verse 9. Paul then says this, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace be with you. So what's Paul saying to the Philippians? He's saying, watch my life. Look at my life. My life is the road that you are to walk. You follow me. He, First, Corinthians, uh, First Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate my faith. So that's what children are going to do with your life, for better or for worse. Uh, you are going to leave a legacy. Is it going to be a godly legacy, or is it going to be a worldly legacy or an evil legacy? What, what's your legacy going to be? Uh, a legacy is a road for your child to walk. You can say one thing. You can, you can preach Bible, 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 but if you don't live it out, your children aren't going to follow you. So you have to live this out. You have to model it. That means that as Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, he says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. You must live a Spirit-filled life. That's your godly example. So you have to be faithful. You have to be a godly Christian, that you have to demonstrate love, that you need to study the Word of God, uh, that you should be faithful in doing the little things right. One of the most formidable things for me you know, my, my father was, was killed when I was two years old, and um, my, my mom remarried Preston four years later, and uh, seen, seen in, in our family, we were at the church Sunday morning and Sunday night, every week, and Wednesday night. And uh, what, what that did for me is just, just those things taught me that worshiping God was important. We would even go to, go to worship on vacation. Uh, when I would go visit the Castleberries down in Lake Jackson, same thing. Sunday morning, Sunday night, I did not want to go back to church. I wanted to stay and, and watch Star Wars and eat Cocoa Pebbles at the house. But every Sunday night, 4, you know, 4.30 p.m., I had to go get dressed, put my khakis on and all that stuff and go back and, and, uh, and uh, get, you know, head back to, to, to First Baptist Church. Normally the sermon wasn't that great and, you know, we'd sit there in the back row. But, you know, I enjoyed singing the hymns and the fellowship with other believers, but it taught me something and it taught me that Sunday was the Lord's Day and it taught me the importance of worshiping God. And that was all modeled to me. Uh, it wasn't like my grandfather set me aside and said, you know, you need to learn this. It was just modeled for me. Um, and and that, that, that legacy, whatever it is, is going to be so important for your kids. They might not tell you this now. Uh, your grandkids might not tell you this now, but, but they're going to talk about it after you're gone so uh, Charles Castleberry, my grandpa I was just telling you about, passed away about a year and a half ago. And when I was uh, cleaning out his desk, uh, I found in, in the, the uh, left drawer a letter. And this letter was written from my dad to him. Now, like I said, my dad was killed in a plane crash. And now Charles Castleberry's gone. And I put a transcript of the letter there in your notes so you can, you can follow along with what he said. So this is my father. He's writing this for Father's Day, 1985. 
So he's going to have one more Father's Day. His death was in September of 1986. He says, Dear Daddy, Happy Father's Day. Well, it is my first Father's Day, and I have a lot more to go. Turns out he didn't. Lots of kid raising to do. I was thinking about the kind of daddy I want to be for my kids and how I'm going to raise them. I was thanking God for all the blessings I've received when I realized that next to Jesus, a Christian daddy is the most important. But a lot of men are Christians but have other priorities over raising their kids. I'm glad you took the time to play football, catch baseballs, jog, basketball, swim in bayous. That's what we do in South Texas. Uh, take us to go on vacations and take us fishing, deep sea too, go to farms, shoot BB guns, etc. Seems you always were playing with us and never said you didn't have the time. I'm also glad you taught us to work hard and to do a job right and to be proud of what we had done. That, that plus setting an example about how a Christian man should treat his wife, other men, and their wives was important. It always made me feel good that everybody always wanted to come over to our house and joke with Mr. C. That's what everybody called my grandfather. Thanks to Daddy for giving us a good home that everyone knows means honor, loyalty, hard work, dedication, trustworthiness, and Christian. I hope to be able to pass all these on to my kids too. Also, Daddy, thanks for being a financial success so we could have nice things and go on vacations. I still marvel that you started a business with four little kids to feed and make it a success. Thanks mostly for being the Christian leader of our house and raising us to love God, I guess I'm just trying to say thanks for being the best dad in the world. I hope I can do as well with my kids. I sure had a good example. He says, I love you, Daddy. You're the best. So both of these men are gone, but their legacy lives on. And that's what you want your life to be. Uh, you're not going to be here but 80, 90 years. And what you want is to make such an impact with your life because your kids are watching you so that when you're gone, how they live is impacted, how your grandkids live is impacted. And uh, to do that, you've got you to be a godly person. You've got to do the right things when, when you don't think that anyone's watching. You, you have to model the Christian life yourself. And uh, as I look at so many Christian parents, I think this is the one thing that so many miss, is they're trying to do all the right things, but they fail to do one of the most important things, and that's to be a good Christian themselves. So it's, it's a godly life. And then third, it's a, a modeling a godly marriage. Uh, a broken home does devastating things to a, to a child. Now, there's grace there. God saves children. God does amazing things with children from broken homes. It's not hopeless. If you're from a broken home or, or you've gone through a divorce, I've known good and godly men and women who went through divorces because, the other spou because their spouse went crazy. I've seen it happen time and again. But a godly marriage brings incredible stability to a child's life. Uh, children love, they might not say it, but they love to see affection between their parents because it, it, it communicates to them that all is right in the world, that there's a foundation underneath their feet uh, that they can stand on. And by God's grace, after my father died and, and my mom remarried Preston in, in uh, 1990, uh, my parents modeled this. What I preached this morning about Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. They modeled this uh, for me. And so when you see this modeled, it's the same thing as a Christian life. What are, when, when your kids grow up and get married, what most likely are they going to do? They're going to model the type of marriage and the type of home that they saw you lead. So your, your marriage is, is very important. And I want to say something else here. Your marriage is more important than your kids. You're first called to be a husband or a wife. 
And at some point, uh, your, your kids are going to, Lord willing, get married and leave. That's what you want. You want them to go and start their own families. Uh, and then it's going to be you and your wife, grandmother and, and grandpa. It's going to be you and, and her. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to uh, spend all your time so pouring into your children that you forget to pour into one another. And so your marriage, I heard somebody say one time, he said, you know, uh, marriage is kind of like you and your wife, you're on the boat, and, and the kids are just passengers for a time. And eventually they're going to get off, but the boat's got to keep moving. So don't lose sight of the fact that the boat is, is what you got to sustain. It's, it's the, the marriage with, with your spouse, and that is going to serve as, as a buttress for your children and a, and a foundation for them when they're going through difficult things in life. So, model a godly marriage. That's number three. Number four, man, this is a, a biggie. I want you to turn to the book of Ephesians. The book of, of Ephesians chapter six. We're actually going to be looking at this uh, more in depth next Sunday, Lord willing. And I want you to just look at verse four. Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, that word discipline, I always just used to think, okay, he's talking about uh, punitive action here. That's what he's talking about. That, that's not what Paul's talking about. It includes that. It includes punitive discipline, but the actual word is the Greek word paideia, P-A-I-D-E-I-A, paideia. And what the paideia was in Greek culture was it was a comprehensive discipline. It was a comprehensive culture. It was a comprehensive framework. Uh, think about the Spartans. What, were, what was the culture that the Spartans were trying to create? They were trying to create a warrior culture. Those Spartan kids that, that grew up, those boys, they were taught to, to wrestle and to, to, to sword fight at an early age and all these things. They were taught to be tough and to endure punishment. It was a comprehensive culture in Sparta. It was a paideia. That's, that's the word. And the same was true in Athens. What type of paideia did Athens have? It was a culture of learning, a culture of wisdom. You know, you have Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and, you know, all the, the, the philosophers and people of, people of learning. It was a comprehensive culture. So what Paul is saying here is you want to bring them up in a culture, a disciplinary culture of the Lord. And this culture is to be the habitation of how that child is reared. So it's a, it's a broad framework. And what this means is that you need to think through everything regarding your family life. Meals, vacations, your evening routine, your recreation, and how that culture that you are creating and your spouse is creating how that culture is affecting those kids. And you want to think with the outcome in mind. So, uh, Earl Woods. Who knows who Earl Woods is? Okay, a few of you, the golfers. Okay, what did Earl Woods do with Tiger? He put him into a comprehensive culture. Now, we could say there were some serious fault lines in that culture. But what he did is he got him out playing golf as a little boy with his special forces buddies. He taught him how to be mentally tough from an early age. He immersed him in this mindset. And what you, what you see from, from Tiger is the product of this little kid that was immersed in the culture of Earl Woods, for better or for worse, both. So it's not just believers that can do this. This is, this, you know, everybody has a culture. And so what you want to think about is how the culture of your home is forming 
your children? Uh, how are you worshiping God together as a family? How are you talking about the Lord? What do you do when you sit down uh, for dinner at night? What, what's the conversation about? Uh, do, do you pray before the meal? You should pray before the meal. You should, you should ask the Lord that, that the Lord would bless the food and, and so on and so forth. How do you do, um, uh, you know, little things? You know, one of the things that, that we do as Castleberries is we always dent our, our soda cans. You see that? There's a little dent right here in the can. That's so we can carry it better. It's also when we're at a party or a social gathering, we know which cans are ours. So you see our little kids, they walk around, they got a little dent in their can. That's just what we do. There's certain things that every family does. You do Christmas one way, you do Thanksgiving one way, you do a brisket, you do, you know, and you, you, you build this whole paideia out. That's, that's what you're trying to do. And of course, as people that have been changed and transformed by the gospel. It should be a culture of grace and joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. So it, it really bothers me, I think, when I see Christian families, and they're just gloomy and dour, and it's like they never have any fun, and their kids are like on a uh, Von Trapp regimen, and, and the kids are just like, man, you know, I hate being a Christian family. You know, that's not that's not the idea. The culture is a culture of, of yes, there's law. We, we learn how to fear God, but there's also a culture of grace, and there's joy. There should be joy in the Christian life, and you should have fun. You should have fun. You don't want your kids to think that being a Christian is, is a, is a, uh, you know, a sad thing, you know, an Oliver Twist story. You don't want that. You want it to be Charles Dickens, Christmas Carol. You want it to be good and full. Um, the gospel is so important in this, um, so important. If you really understand the gospel, you're going to have a, a culture in your household where people forgive one another, where people forgive one another. You know, you see families, and they're embittered. The kids are embittered against the parents. Parents are embittered against the kids. Kids are embittered against one another. The reason is they, they've never forgiven anybody. So in your family, do you forgive one another? When, when you sin against people, do your kids hear you apologize? Do, you, do your kids uh, see uh, even, even their, their parents um, asking God for forgiveness and, and mercy and apologizing? Uh, these are things that are all a part of, of your family culture, and, and grace should be, um, should permeate every aspect of it, and understanding what Christ has done for us. Okay, so that's four. Uh, two more. Fifth is discipline, and by this I do mean uh, training and um, punitive discipline. This is behavioral correction, okay? Um, Discipline is one of the most important things that you can do to change your child's behavior. Discipline is one of the most important things you can do to change your, change your child's behavior. Um, Solomon says this, Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 19, 17, discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Uh, sometimes I've heard parents say, well, my child doesn't respond to, to, uh, to discipline. Well, one, you're either doing it wrong, or two, you haven't disciplined them, them properly because they do respond. Uh, discipline is part of God's common grace as well. It, it's a it's a means to help train and conform the child's behavior. And it's also a means by which your child begins to understand the law of God. They need to understand the law of God so they can come to understand the gospel. I was reading uh, a book that, that Jordan Peterson wrote a few years ago. Jordan Peterson's not a believer, um, secular philosopher. He said, quote, Parents who refuse to adopt the responsibility for disciplining their children think that they can just opt out of the conflict necessary for proper child rearing. 
They avoid being the bad guy in the short term, but they do not at all rescue or protect their children from fear and pain. So you, uh, you want to discipline your children. You want to discipline them in a godly way, uh, not in a harsh way, not in a way that's going to provoke them, but you do need to discipline them. Most often when our, our children or other people's children that you see, when you see just erratic behavior, when you see disobedience, it's a mark of an undisciplined child. It's a mark normally of an undisciplined child. And we're going to talk a lot about that next week. So that's all we're going to talk about next week. So uh, don't walk away saying, oh, we, we didn't get to talk. Come back next week. This is the commercial for next week, all right? So we're going to talk about how to discipline, how to discipline with grace, how to discipline the right way, when to discipline, all those things. So come back next week for that. All right, six and finally, you want to teach them the Word of God and impart to them a biblical worldview. And we're going to spend the entire uh, last week on this one, but let me just give you just kind of a, a foretaste of what this is about. One, you need them to understand the law of God, as we just talked about. You need them to understand the gospel, and you want to bring the gospel to them as much as possible. And both the father and the mother have this responsibility. If you're a grandfather or grandmother, this is also your responsibility. Proverbs 6.20 says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Proverbs 1.8, hear my son your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. The word, uh, the Hebrew word for teaching is literally the Hebrew word Torah. It's the, the mother is imparting to the child the word of God, literally teaching the child the word of God to give them the basic biblical framework about the world. So what the child needs is the gospel. And they're there really is an assumption in the New Testament that parents are going to preach the gospel to their children and, Lord willing, lead them to faith. Uh, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. He had an expectation that his grandmother and his mother had imparted that faith to Timothy. And there's an expectation that you as the parent will impart that faith to your child. Now, it might not be you. It might be a Sunday school teacher here or, or somebody else. But, but Lord willing, you will do everything within your capacity to, to teach your children the gospel, lead them to Christ, and give them a biblical worldview. And that right there is the most important education you can give your kids. It's not their SAT prep. I would so much rather my kid be saved and have a biblical worldview and go to Wake Tech than to be a pagan and go to Harvard. Every day, every day of the week, you want your child to have a biblical worldview. So I want to close by having you turn to Proverbs 2 because Solomon is going to, to give really a... a a summary in how to do this, and, and we're going to dive deep into this in, in week number three. But I want you to turn to Proverbs 2. And Proverbs 2 breaks down into two sections. The first half, verses 1 through 11, is about the transformation of the child. Okay? Verses 1 through 11, the transformation of the child. Verses 12 to 22 are the results of that transformation. This is, okay, you give this child a biblical worldview and they're transformed, verses 1 to 11, verses 12 to 22 are the results of that transformation. Okay, look at verse 1. Verse 1, verses 1 to 4, the transformation begins with the Word of God. Verse 1, Solomon is going to say what, what you need to do with your child is you need to have them listen to the Word of God. They didn't, families didn't have Bibles back then. You heard the Word of God as the priest read it, or maybe you had it memorized and you would speak it to your child and they, they heard it 
uh, orally. So he says, first, the child is to listen to the Word of God. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom. Then, second part of verse 2, not only do you want the child to hear the Word of God, read the Word of God, you want them to memorize the Word of God. Notice this phrase, inclining your heart to understanding. You want them to begin to absorb the Word of God so that their heart begins to desire to know it, to understand, understand it, meditate on it. Third, is you pray for understanding of the Word of God. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. You know, God's Word is hard to understand. Um, that's, that's true of myself. That's true of you. That's true of all of us. You know, we're all learning the Word of God at different levels. Um, and the child needs to cry out to the Lord to help understand. And you need to cry out for the Lord on, on behalf of the child and then fourth, verse four, is the pursuit of the Word of God. This is when the child begins to hunger and thirst for the Word, and this is what you want. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. This is when they begin to, to really see the, 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 the wonder and the value of God's Word, and, and, the, and their life begins to be about the Word of God. Now, here's the first result of this. Look at verse five. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord. What's that? Wisdom. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord. That's where wisdom starts. You see how it flows directly from the child's interaction with the Word of God. And then, verse 5, find the knowledge of God. Calvin said that the knowledge of God is everything. He says if you can, if you can know God, then you can orient everything to God, and then you can know yourself. Most people don't know God, so therefore they don't know themselves. They're going out into the desert and smoking peyote to try to figure out who they are, having a journey. Uh, Calvin says, you know God, and you can figure it, you can orient yourself to figure out who you are and where you are. And it begins with the knowledge of God, which comes from the knowledge of the Word of God. Then, verse 6 now, remember, we said at the very beginning, the Lord has to do something. The Lord has to intersect that child's life. Verse 6, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth. Come knowledge and understanding. The Lord gives wisdom to the child. That's what you want. You want the Lord to give wisdom to the child. So They, they, they fear the Lord. Now they have wisdom. Um, God gives from his mouth. Come understanding and knowledge. Verse 7, he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. So God just keeps overflowing with wisdom to these children that are now walking in the Word. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Now, verse, verse 8, it switches from, from knowing the Lord and knowing who you are vertically to now being able to live rightly in the world. This is what the transformation does, is now that child knows how to walk in the world. In, in the Proverbs, uh, the path and the way are metaphors of wisdom. The way, knowing the way that you should walk is a metaphor for wisdom. It's you're walking in wisdom. Guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasing to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. So that's the transformation of the child. Then in verse 12, you see the outcome. What's the outcome of once that child has wisdom? Well, there were two things that every Jewish father wanted their son to avoid. One was the violent man who took things contrary to God's law, who acted against God's law. And the second is the adulterous woman. So those are the two pitfalls. And Solomon says this. He says, if, if, if you get the child 
to the Word of God, to where they're transformed, to where they know God, they know themselves. Now they're walking in equity and justice and righteousness. You have put them on a path. You ever hear Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go? The way is wisdom. Sometimes I've heard that, you know, you need to try and figure out what is unique about that child, and that's their way. No, no, no. The way is simply wisdom. You want your child to fear God, and then they won't depart from that way. That's what Solomon's saying. He's saying the same thing here. He's saying, you put them on this path, and then he says, what happens is you're delivered from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Then he shifts, verse 16, this is the other fear, that you would fall into the hands of the adulterous woman. He says, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, from her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the, the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her pass to the departed. None who, who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you, walk, so you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. Now listen, verse 21 for the upright will inhabit the land. The land is the covenant blessing of God. Uh, Paul says in Romans 4 that those that are in Christ will inherit the whole earth. Um, you walk in righteousness, you're, you will inherit the land, you will inherit the, the blessings of God, and those with integrity will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. So, it all begins in verses 1 to 4 with that child's interaction with the Word of God. It begins with listening to the Word, meditating on the Word, praying that you would understand the Word, and then that desire for the Word of God to begin to awaken. And then uh, in, in the Christian life, doctrine and application are woven together like bark on a tree. They flow together. You can't, you can't untangle them. The child that thinks rightly about God is going to act rightly before the face of God. And you're going to have a child, Lord willing, that walks in the fear of the Lord. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to sing, because it's Reformation Month, we're going to sing uh, Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress. All right, so let, let's pray, and, and, and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, Lord, we we do pray for, for our children and grandchildren that are represented here that we would parent them in the fear of the Lord and that we would, uh, we would do all things well for your honor and your glory. We pray, Lord, for children that, that are not saved, that you would lead them into the kingdom and that you would use us to lead them, that you, you would use us to bring the gospel to them. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.